welcome to Fantastic History. I'm Sarah. And I'm Clay. We're a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history. So it's been a little while since we've done a medieval story. And, you know, sometimes I'm just kind of like in that mood. Like a tunic wearing mood, I guess. A tunic wearing mood, okay. Yeah, you know. So for today's story, I'm going to take you to what is now Baghdad, Iraq in the year 789. When an all but forgotten cultural icon was born. I'm intrigued. Yeah. So his birth name, and forgive me, I'm going to do my best here. (laughs) His birth name was Abul Hassan Ali Ibn Nafi. But he would come to be known as Ziryab, which is either Persian for Jaybird or Arabic for Blackbird, depending on which source you want to believe. Okay. So this guy... (laughs) I'm going to tell you about all of the things he influenced and all the ways he changed culture. And you're going to think I'm exaggerating or that he's some kind of mythological character. But everything that follows in this episode is verified fact. I'm super intrigued. (laughs) So I just, I wanted to go ahead and say that up front because as I was doing my research, like with each new thing I learned about Ziryab, I was like, there is no way, like there's just no way that one single person was behind like all this different stuff, but he was. Okay. Okay. So let's get started. I couldn't find a ton of information on Ziryab's childhood that doesn't involve like a ton of speculation. Like a lot of people believe his parents were freed slaves or that he himself was a freed slave, but there are no definitive records on that. Like there's also a lot of debate as to whether his family was originally African, Persian or Kurdish. So very nebulous origins here. Yeah. Some, somebody at some point in his lineage was probably a freed slave And they were from somewhere Middle East-ish. What we do know is that his family served Caliph al-Mahdi until his death in 785, which gave them a much more elevated position in Muslim society than they might have otherwise had. So a Caliph is um, not necessarily a monarch, but more of like a cultural and religious leader. So the Caliph would be the, like the, the top dog, the highest person in power, but this it's not necessarily a, like a monarchy situation. This not a direct correlation to like King or whatever. Okay. So just FYI, because there are a few Caliphs in the story. So because of their association with the Caliph, um, Ziryab was able to study music under a famous court musician named Aishek Al-Masli. And again, I apologize. <laughs> uh, this is a huge deal when you consider the fact that Baghdad was considered the cultural capital of the entire world at the time. So Ziryab was learning from the best of the best in the whole world. Pretty big deal. Yeah. Al-Mahdi was succeeded by his son, Al-Rashid, and Al-Rashid loved music and was big on hosting parties with lots of entertainment for his guests. So he was calling on Ishak and his students fairly often. It didn't take long for Ziryab to start to stand out from the crowd. 
Like he took his music lessons very seriously and he used almost all of his free time to further his education. And by further his education, I mean that he taught himself how to play all of Ishak's original compositions, most of which were super difficult and elaborate. Mm. But so here's where it gets dicey. Ishak had no idea Ziryab's skill was so advanced. There was no missing that Ziryab was super bright and talented, but the extent of his brightness and talent wasn't known until Al-Rashid asked Ishak to have Ziryab do a solo performance for him. So you can kind of like see where this is going. Like the teacher has no idea that his student is so gifted. And at this moment, the teacher is like the leader's top guy. Mm -hmm. Mm. So... Zir Yab comes out and sings a few songs. Everybody is moved by the beauty of his voice and by his grace and his charms. You know, everybody's thinking like this can't possibly get any better. But when the caliph praised Zir Yab's skill, Zir Yab replied, I can sing what the other singers know, but most of my repertoire is made up of songs suitable only to be performed before a caliph like your majesty. The other singers don't know these numbers. If your majesty permits, I'll sing for you what human ears have never heard before. Wow. Yeah. So he's, he's got some confidence. Uh, you know, I'll give him that. So this is obviously intriguing. I mean, if somebody said that he, you'd be like, hell yeah, here's the ox cord, right? So Al Rashid tells him, you know, pop off. And he has somebody bring in Ishak's Oud. For Ziryab to play his songs. So an oud is very similar to a lute, mm-hmm. uh, which is like the great great grandfather of the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> it has, you know, sort of like a, a, like if you cut a pear in half lengthwise, like it's got that kind of shape. So it's like kind of like a bowl underneath of it, you know, kind of bulbous in the back. Yeah. Um, and it's got like four sets of strings on a long neck. And that long neck is kind of like bent at a 90 degree angle at the top. So just kind of so you can picture what I'm talking about here. But so Ishak's oud is brought out, but Ziryab says, no, thank you. I've got my own oud that I made with my own two hands. So not only has he used his free time to learn all these complicated songs, but he also made his own oud by hand. Like just from looking at what other ouds look like. That's he crazy. Yes. So while a servant was sent to get Ziryab's custom oud, the caliph asked why he couldn't just use Ishak's, to which Ziryab replied, if the caliph wants me to sing in my master's style, I'll use his oud. But to sing in my own style, I need this instrument. Even though the wood and the size are the same, the weight is not. My oud weighs about a third less than Ishak's, and my strings are made of silk that has not been spun with hot water, which weakens them. The bass and third strings are made of lion gut, which is softer and more sonorous than that of other animal. These strings are stronger than any others, and they can better withstand the striking of the pick. Wow. Yeah. So, but now when he says pick, Ziryab is being a little modest. So like most picks of that time are exactly like guitar picks are today, except that they were made of wood. Mm-hmm. But that's not good enough for Ziryab, who uses a fucking eagle claw as a pick. <laughs> like, what? That's amazing. 
He's very, ex- very extra, huh? Very extra. Like, this is a bougie dude. Yeah. I love it. Everybody forgave how extra he was being as soon as they heard Ziryab perform one of his own songs. Folks were moved to tears. It was like the most lovely and melodious music they had ever heard. Al-Rashid joked with Ishaq that if he thought Ziryab's talent had been hidden from him on purpose, he would have Ishaq severely punished. Mm. Uh-huh. Like, joking. Right? <laughs> like, Okay. So predictably, as soon as they were behind closed doors, Ishak raged at Ziryab for humiliating him in front of the caliph and said that if he didn't leave Baghdad immediately, Ishak was going to murder him, even though he would be risking his own death by doing so. Like, it would be worth it to him. Even if this gets me killed, I will kill you if you don't leave. That is some hurt pride. That is, yeah, I think I think he's a little bit feeling a little bit sore in his heart about that. So Ishak was that pissed that he was willing to like go down with the ship if it meant not ever having to be embarrassed like that again. Ziryab was no fool. So he gathered up his belongings and booked it out of Iraq. Like not just Baghdad, he left Iraq altogether. So when Al-Rashid later asked Ishak what happened to Ziryab, he was told that Ziryab was a crazy person who heard a voice in his dreams and went running after it. Hmm. Yeah. Interestingly enough, though, this wasn't like a complete lie because Ziryab did consider his dreams to be prophetic. Many of his most beautiful melodies and most innovative ideas were said to come to him while he was sleeping. And he'd like wake up in the middle of the night and have his students like write it down. Hmm. Ziryab fled to Egypt, then to Tunisia and finally to Cordoba in Spain which was um, an Islamic state at the time. Having a place in court in Islamic Spain had been a dream of his since he left home because it was like the new up-and-coming place as far as culture at the time. So he sent a letter of introduction to Khalif al-Rahman II, who was thrilled at the prospect of having an Iraqi musician in his court. He offered Ziryab a huge salary of 200 gold pieces a month with a twice yearly bonus of 500 gold pieces plus a thousand gold pieces on the two major Islamic holidays plus hundreds of bushels of wheat and barley and his own palace in Cordoba with a few vacation homes sprinkled throughout the Spanish countryside. My God. Uh Uh-huh. It's really not a bad job if you can get it. You know, I have to agree with that. Yeah, I feel like if somebody offered me that, I'd say, you know what? I don't even have to think about it. Yes. Yeah. I will take it. That's amazing. Okay. Well, good for him. Right? If you're wondering why Al Rahman was willing to ball so hard for Ziryab, it was all about trying to attract more culture to the Andalusian region, which is where Cordoba is. Mm hmm. Like I mentioned before, Baghdad was really the cultural center of the world at the time. And so all of the top guys were headed that way. Baghdad had not only the best musicians, but they also attracted the best scholars and scientists, the best artists, the best poets. And Al-Rahman thought that if he's able to say, hey, look, I've got this super talented musician from Baghdad at court, like right here, maybe folks won't keep heading to Baghdad. Maybe, if you know, everyone in Europe will come to Cordoba instead of, you know, going all that way. 
But even Alraman in his wildest dreams could not have predicted just how thoroughly the culture in Cordoba would be changed by this decision and the lasting impact it was going to have on civilization as a whole. So we're about to get into all the stuff that made Zir Yab such a legend. So this is the part where you're probably going to start calling bullshit because it just seems so outrageous <laughs> that a single guy could be responsible for this stuff. So just, you know, feel free to, to interject with your outrage. Okay. But I'm just, you know, I'm prefacing. This is all verified. You're just, you're just the messenger. I am just relaying historical facts to you. Okay. So the first thing Ziryab did after securing the bag and becoming a minister of culture for Andalusia was to found the very first musical conservatory in the world. Wow. The first music school anywhere. His school of music was open to both upper and lower class students. And unlike other schools of its time, it encouraged students to experiment with different sounds and come up with their own stuff instead of just memorizing the classics. So like how, you know, Ishak had his students just kind of learning the stuff he had written. Ziryab's like, go, go for it. Like shoot for the stars. If you can come up with something, come up with it. That's awesome. Don't just memorize my stuff. Like, We've already heard that. That's boring. So basically, like Ziryab's goal was to create lots of other Ziryabs. So he's kind of the opposite of Ishak in that way. He's like, no, go ahead and upstage me. Like, you should be getting better and improving and just not not repeating me. We want there to be more music in the world. So like, I, I, I just thought that was a very interesting contrast. Yeah. So to that end, he also made sure that all of the ouds being used had five sets of strings instead of the standard four. Music historian Julian Ribera notes that at the time, people believed the four sets of strings on an oud or lute were supposed to represent the four humors of the body. So bile, blood, phlegm, and melancholy. (laughs) Oh, yes, that fluid. (laughs) Yeah, well, one of these things is not like the others, right? But it was said that by adding a fifth set of strings, Ziryab gave the lute a soul. Oh. Oh. The soul fluid. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I don't think we should talk about that in case there's kids listening. Um, So now that he's basically dominating the music scene, Ziryab had to find new worlds to conquer. So using his palatial connections, he became a master of geography and astronomy kept up to date on world events and penned prolific poetry, which I didn't mean for that to be so alliterative, but I'm not mad at it. (laughs) Penned prolific poetry. And because he could talk to anybody about pretty much anything that interested them, he started to become very popular really, really quickly. And you have to figure like, especially think about the fact that yes, he's a member of court and he's the minister of culture, But his school, like the students he's working with, it's not just this upper echelon of society, but he's also taking like poorer people too, like anyone, regardless of social status, who has musical ability, you can come to the school. So he is learning to not only talk to the people he's seeing at court, but like kind of more normal people too, like not just, you know, royalty, which tends to kind of keep to themselves. So he's learning to converse about anything with anyone. So this is like charisma out the ass. (laughs) Crazy. 
So because of this, because he's able to kind of go amongst all different classes of people, his influence became astronomical because everybody liked this guy. He was not like the sort of person like is going to be really nice to your face and then kind of shitty behind your back or like in the modern day, he wouldn't have been like really charming at dinner, but then he's rude to the server. Like nobody really ever registered complaints about him or like, you know, he's great, but like there was never a kind of that. So kind of universally beloved. The first thing he wanted to set straight was the table manners in Spain. So before he stepped in, even in court, the meal customs were considered barbaric with piles of food just being set on the bare wooden table and people digging in. <laughs> we, yeah, I mean, think about it. This is like the, the, the 700s and the early 800s. So that's not like too, too crazy. But it is funny to picture like people in their, you know, gowns just digging into huge piles of food. Right? No, I think it's fair to say that's pre- that sounds insane, even for that time. Because this was not like... like Fred Flintstone. <laughs> you <Well>. know, <laughs> um, this is well into civilization. So for, right. for, for, that, 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 is ext- that is very surprising to me, at least. Well, and the reason why it was that way is like the culture in the region ha- was still left over from like the Vandals and the Visigoths who were just kind of nomadic conquerors who wouldn't have really bothered with like setting a table, right? But it is kind of weird that like all of these like Muslim people have moved to Spain, but then adopted this culture when I feel like that's probably not how meals were eaten in their countries of origin. Uh, yeah. I but know. yeah, well, like, I guess, you know, when in Spain eat like the Visigoths do, I don't know. So it's not even just that, like a lot of food is being put out and set right on the table, but like, all of the food is being brought out at the same time. So meats, soups, pastries, fruits, cheeses, everything brought out all at once and put on the table. And you just like set to it without any sort of order or decorum involved. Like every single meal is a free for all. Zeryab took one look at this and said, nah, man, I'm not about that. He started off small and suggested that the gold or wooden drinking vessels that were common should be replaced with chalices made of glass or crystal instead. Because you know how if you're drinking a soda out of a can, it has kind of a metallic taste that it doesn't have if you're drinking it out of a glass? Oh, yeah. Most drinking vessels at the time, and especially in court, were like made out of gold or other metals. So he was literally the first person to say, let's make our cups out of glass. He huh. invented glasses to drink out of. He carved them himself out of crystal and presented them to the caliph and said, try this. Whoa. Uh-huh. So now that he's literally invented glassware, he's going to move on and he's like, okay, So what if we put like a barrier down on top of the table so that there's something between the wooden surface and our food? So he invented tablecloths. You're right. This is getting crazy. It sounds insane, right? He invented glasses and tablecloths, but he did. This madman who built his own loot. I know. (laughs) Added a fifth set of strings, like 
Yeah. Now, now there's you know no more worlds left to conquer. He's weeping. <laughs> so he invents tablecloths, but he wasn't done, because with the blessing of the caliph, he started having the kitchen staff bring the food out a little bit at a time. So first they would bring out the soup. Once that was done, the table was cleared and they brought out the meats and vegetables. Once that was done, the table was cleared again and they brought out fruits, sweet pastries, and nuts. He invented the three-course meal, which is also the source for the expression from soup to nuts. <laughs> okay. He, he invented courses in, in a meal. Um, so... Obviously, there's going to be people who are listening that are like, this is not, this can't be right. <laughs> you know? I have, I will have my sources down in the show notes, you know, go to town. So if you want to come and say that, at least bring um, some examples of like, well, in 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 China or Japan, <laughs> they were doing something like this mm-hmm. um, because there might be, situ- there might, there might be things like that, that, that maybe aren't exactly the same, but sort of... Uh, yeah um like the progenitor of whatever yeah maybe but this is uh this is what this is pretty wacky it is and let me tell you what though he wasn't quite done revolutionizing mealtime because he also decided that this really weird looking weed that grew locally would actually make a great vegetable side dish which is when people first started eating asparagus really he discovered asparagus I wonder if he was like, you know, before it blossoms and, and grows into this giant bush, mm-hmm. it looks delicious. He's like, you know what? My pee doesn't smell weird, and I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> Start off as a joke. Uh-huh. I dare you, man. See what happens. So now that their tables were looking spiffy and refined, it was time for the people of Andalusia to step up their looks and hygiene. First things first. He formulated the very first toothpaste in Europe. Get those teeth up to code. Toothpaste. Toothpaste. First in Europe. Like there, there's no record of what he used as ingredients, but it was described as being like sweet and pleasant. And uh, I mean, I guess if you're having people like sing in your face all day long, you want them to brush their teeth. So like I can see that being a priority. Okay. It it does seem like a um like a pretty big change to go from you got music mm-hmm. and maybe you want to sort of refine people. You got some influence, you want to say let's 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 civilize ourselves a bit. Yeah. But then to jump to toothpaste. Well, I mean, he's having people breathe in his face all day. Well, everyone breathes in everyone else's face. Well, keep in mind, though, that it was the first toothpaste in Europe and he was coming from Iraq. Mm -hmm. So it's possible, nay, probable that some form of toothpaste was being used in the Middle East already. Okay. And he just kind of brought that with him and was like, oh, my God, you guys, your breath smells like shit. Like, I can't live here like this. (laughs) So, I mean, just just to keep that in mind, it was only the first in Europe, not the first ever. Now, did he invent the toothbrush? I don't know. Probably not, because I feel like that would have been mentioned. Yeah. I feel like that was a much more recent invention. Well, what were people doing with their toothpaste? I don't know. Like, when people are testing out, like, cocaine and they just rub it on their teeth? I don't know. 
if you if you know out there <laughs> how were people using toothpaste what was the application process like well which came first the toothbrush or the toothpaste most definitely the toothpaste you think so yes 100,000 percent because my thought was maybe people were brushing their teeth like they brush their hair mm-hmm. dry just to get all the crud off of it and out of the teeth mm-hmm. and then somebody was like you know how we're starting to wash our hair now what if you could wash your teeth and people were like that's crazy <laughs> but i'm probably uh, but i might be getting it completely backwards I imagine that to start with, people were probably using like some type of cloth to scrub their teeth with. And mm. then the brush was like a later invention, if I had to guess. Okay. So, our teeth is, you know, our teeth is, wow. Our <laughs> teeth are looking and smelling the best they ever have. So then he taught people to add salt to the water when they were washing their hair because the abrasiveness of the salt was great for scrubbing away dirt on your scalp and also for conditioning your hair and making it softer. Ah. So like you might have noticed, um, I don't know about you, honey, because you have pretty short hair. But for me and anybody listening who's you know ever had a little bit longer hair. Um, if you swim in the ocean or even if you're like taking a shower at a hotel that is on the coast, your hair tends to be a lot softer because there's so much salt in the water. It like noticeably affects the texture of your hair. And like my hair, for example, is a lot curlier when I'm out at the coast. Like it just completely having the salt in the water does have a very noticeable effect on your hair. So props to him for that. Interesting. Next up, he made it fashionable for men to shave their faces and cut their hair. We're talking extreme makeover Cordoba edition. (laughs) That was not something that men did before. Like when you, you see pictures of like ancient times and especially like, because we live in the American South, a lot of like biblical portraits, you're seeing long beards, long hair on men. Zir Yab was like, no, you are not looking fresh. You're looking nasty and ragged. We're going (laughs) to shave. We're going to trim. First got to do that. Crazy. Yeah. Trendsetter. Right? But Zeryab was nothing if not inclusive. So he then turned his attention to the ladies. So at the time, it was expected for Spanish Muslim women to wear their hair parted in the middle and braided down the back. But like this top part here is going to be loose in such a way that it covers the ears before being pulled back and braided. So, you know, fairly modest, but like out of the way. So he took one look at this and said, that is not fashion. So naturally, he invented the bob haircut with bangs. But he simply couldn't stop there. He also taught women how to shape their eyebrows, how to use depilatories to remove body hair, and develop new perfumes and other cosmetics that were either derivative of Baghdad styles or modified Andalusian customs. Huh. This man went ham sandwich on these people. Yeah. He went crazy. And just for, for the audience, Clay is looking at me like squint-eyed, like that meme of Fry from Futurama. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's true. But it's so... It's bouncing around so much. It's outlandish, honestly. Some of it makes sense. 
and like we're civilizing people, mm-hmm. maybe making them, maybe taking things that I am used to from um, Baghdad mm-hmm. and sort of bringing it here, which which is new, mm-hmm. but st- but other things that just seem to ha- be coming out of nowhere. Right. Yeah. You wouldn't like. It's hard to mentally understand the leap from music to you know dinner table manners to grooming and like all that kind of stuff we're not even done i still got some more to tell you but he's just all over the place and and it kind of goes back to what i was saying before about how he was interacting with all different types of people learning all different types of things and like all so you like people are coming to him with ideas and he's obviously very a very brilliant man with an excellent memory to be able to have learned all the music that he did and teach himself all the music and things that he did. Cause that's a very complicated thing to learn. Oh, yeah. Most people cannot play an instrument or read music and especially not at that time. So we're talking about a very smart dude that is very, very good at figuring things out for himself. Yeah. So he sees the problem. He's fixing it. Don't even worry about it. And maybe a few people are like, hey, I know you got a lot of influence around here. Can you tell my husband to shave his nasty beard? (laughs) So he comes out later and is like, you know what we should do? Trim our beards. All the guys are like, yes, sir. (laughs) It is too hot to be walking around with all this hair. Am I right? So we got our grooming on point. Now we have to get our wardrobe together. So he became the very first person to develop seasonal wardrobes. Really? Previously, when it was cold, people would just add lots of extra layers of their usual clothes. And when it was hot, they would strip down to only one or two layers. But Ziryab was like, okay, cool. But what if we just made heavier, warmer clothes for winter and lighter, more breathable clothes for summer? Like, doesn't that make more sense to you guys? Not only that, but he also started experimenting with different colors for different seasons and palettes that we still use to this day. Hmm. He decided jewel tones for fall, dark clothes for winter, floral colors for spring, and whites and pastels for summer. I mean, it just makes sense. It does, but nobody was doing that before. It makes sense because that's what we've been doing for hundreds of years because they're yabs that it makes sense. Well, it also makes sense from the perspective of if you're going to be out in the summer, mm-hmm. you want you don't want to be wearing black. And if you're out mm-hmm. and if you're you want to stay warm, you do want to wear dark colors that sort of trap that that heat. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but as, as you said, it, I guess it just wasn't important enough to change the culture. Right. And he, I mean... To be perfectly honest, this part of his legacy was very much at the time tied to wealth because you have to be able to afford all these different colors and fabrics and, you know, whatever. But so not only that, he also popularized wearing different types of clothing at different types of day, as well as introducing silk as a fabric for clothing. Mm. You you might remember I mentioned before that like silk was what they used to make the strings for the oud. Yeah. Well, he was like, you know what else we could use this for? Our clothes. He also made striped fabric into clothing for the first time ever. 
People weren't wearing stripes. Were people not wearing stripes or was or was it not fashionable? Maybe both. I don't know. Maybe they weren't wearing them because it wasn't fashionable. Yeah. But that was very much not a thing before. Huh. Other things for which Zir Yab is given credit is the teaching of astrology and astronomy, introducing chess and polo to Europe, using leather to upholster furniture, and making wine popular. Come on. Yep. What does it take to make alcohol popular? Apparently a lot because it wasn't before. That's weird. Yes, it is. So what was it before? I don't, you know, I didn't look into that. I don't know. But maybe, I mean, there were just, I guess, different types of alcohol that were popular in the region. And he was like, okay, what about those like nasty old grapes though? (laughs) <laughs> what if you mashed up those grapes that have been sitting around well, for a while he didn't invent wine you're he saying. didn't invent wine but like he was like made it popular in his little glass crystal chalice that he carved for himself on top of his tablecloth at the dessert <laughs> course of dinner yeah and, and everyone's like "Ooh, what is he drinking right it's, yeah it's grapes <laughs> like wow this guy's this guy really knows what's going on i guess i better start <laughs> drinking that too exactly So there's nobody on earth throughout history who's had a greater impact on the day-to-day lives of human civilization than Ziryab. Like we still follow his customs and model his fashions hundreds of years later. And that is the story of history's first influencer. Oh, for God's sake. Am I wrong? No. Am I wrong? Man. (laughs) Got him. Oh, Oh, God. (laughs) but i want to know what he tried to get popular that failed selfies like was he like uh, he was too ahead of his time (laughs) was he like yo check this out and everybody was like that's stupid why is he braiding his back hair that's so weird (laughs) check it out it's a it's a two-piece bathing suit people are like nah crazy insane (laughs) never gonna happen Well, I guess you guys aren't ready for that, but your kids are going to love it. (laughs) Well, guys, thanks for tuning in, spending some of your time with us today. Hopefully you enjoyed that story. And if you did, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. Check us out on Zuryab's favorite app, Instagram and Twitter. (laughs) We're at Fantastic HPod on both. You can also shoot us a message at fantastichistorypod at gmail.com if you know of any amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history that you'd like us to cover on the show, or if you just want to say hi. Hi.